Let's pray together. Our Father, what a blessing and a treasure we have in your Son, Jesus. As we celebrate the birth of our Messiah, we celebrate the birth of our King. Our souls rejoice because he was born to rule over us. Finally, a good, redeeming king. We have been imprisoned in a kingdom opposed to you, a kingdom that hates you and hates your creation and hates us. But you, because it is in your nature to have compassion and mercy, looked upon humanity, saw our need, and provided the way to you. In your son, we have more than an example to aspire to. We have you. For the Son has always been with you. His nature is the same as yours. What a blessing and a treasure that you gave your Son as our Redeemer. His perfect nature leading a perfect life, then suffering on the cross, raised on the third day, ascended to heaven, and now ruling at your right hand. We have so much to celebrate. And Lord, we do not neglect to remember that your son is the redeemer, your son the redeemer is also the one who will judge all of us on the last day. So we take heed of his commands. And when we fall short, we call on the mercy he provides. Father, forgive us, for even the briefest look at your son's commands demands a reckoning with you. We have all fallen short in some way, whether seeking some comfort or pleasure at someone else's expense, or pride, thinking we have accomplished without you, or deserve more than you have given us, or we approve unrighteousness for the sake of the world's approval, or we have been dividers rather than reconcilers, or we give anger or lust a seat of authority in our hearts. Lord, iniquity runs through our hearts. Bring us healing. Bring us more and more into the true humanity in the world that you will make new. Keep us from being deceived. Lord, as we wrestle against spiritual powers and our own sin, we thank you for the other churches that are doing the same. We pray especially today for Salem First Baptist and the Branch Church in Corvallis. We pray that their gatherings this morning would be rich with your word, and we pray that your gospel would reach many with its power. Let visitors and guests see your love in the love they have for one another. We pray for those congregations that they would lead lives of purity of worship, making you their king and sole authority. And Father, for ourselves, we ask for help as we wrestle with the rampant consumerism and worship of earthly possessions that has overrun this country. If we have little, we ask for contentment so that we would not fall into idolatry. If we have much, we ask for a sensitive conscience so we would not fall into idolatry. We have such a blessing and a treasure in our Redeemer so we ask that everything else would pale in comparison. Guard our hearts, preserve us as the world tries to stir up envy, greed, and pride in our hearts. Use your word this morning as we hear it preached to stir up such wonder and awe at our Messiah that the things of this earth show themselves to be fading away in the face of your glory and grace. We pray all of these things in submission to the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. 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 You can have a seat. Thank you, Ryan. And you can open up to the first chapter of Matthew. 
first chapter in the Gospel according to Matthew. Well, Merry Christmas. Thank you for coming if you're a visitor. It's good to worship the Lord with you this morning. Kids who are in the audience, do you know that you are reflections of your parents? Parents, did you know that your children reflect you? And in a way, you reflect your your kids. You'll find that out in the teenage years if you haven't already because they'll show complete embarrassment. The argument of how personalities and behavior are formed has been waged for a long time, but the answer is pretty clear. There is some manner in which the personalities, mannerisms, and culture of the parents shows itself out in their children. We see this in biological children. We see this in adopted children. We show ourselves in our children. And sometimes this is a joy, and sometimes it's a curse. Because not only do they show our good sides, but oftentimes they also show our negative sides. Even in our culture of autonomy and individuality, we still recognize that parents and children are connected and reflect one another. But this was even more prominent in cultures and societies in the past, where parents were even held responsible for the activity of their children. One of the strongest illustrations of this idea is seen in leaders, whether it be presidents or kings, queens, or even elders within a church. There is an expectation that the children of that leader will follow in their footsteps and be a leader of moral character themselves. And when this is not present, it reflects upon the parent. We can look at the last two presidents of our nation as examples, whether it be the current president or the previous one. Nefarious activity on the part of the children reflects on the parent. President Teddy Roosevelt, who served in office from 1901 to 1909, had a daughter who, while he was in office, became known for her wild lifestyle. When asked about the behavior of his 19-year-old daughter, President Roosevelt said, I can do one of two things. I can be president of the United States, or I can control Alice Roosevelt. I cannot possibly do both. (laughs) Children reflect their parents. And this is why the topic of lineage was so important to the people of history. There was a, a belief that if the king was a good king, then perhaps, maybe, that would rub off on their children. And if the king was not a good king, the last thing you wanted was for their son to take the throne. You can still somewhat see this hope of mankind, that the children of supposed royalty will turn out to be of great character. The closest thing we know in our day Uh, is the obsessiveness that surrounds the British royal family. With every new generation, the children are looked upon as if they are the golden child, the hope of British society. People are still waiting for a king that can save them. In America, we even see this in our sporting culture. King James, LeBron James, he has children, and the world looks at them intently to see if they will truly reflect their basketball star father's greatness. Even with our focus on independence and autonomy, we still believe deep down that children reflect their parents, and so lineage matters, even today. But we must admit that while this idea is still present somewhat in our society, our understanding of the importance of lineage, especially royal lineage, has gotten a great deal cloudier. It is different for us. And unless you're a person who dabbles in genealogy, you probably do not pay a great deal of attention to your background or family history. So it's indeed difficult when we come to an ancient document like the Bible to hear the original author in full on this topic of lineage and genealogy. 
We are very far removed from this culture, and that's why many of us in our chronological reading plans just kind of hurry through Matthew chapter 1. But we must seek to bridge the gap of understanding if we're truly to grasp all that the Bible is presenting when it talks about the gospel. And this is because the Greek word behind the good news or the gospel that is the bedrock of our faith tells us of a very particular kind of news. It was not good news of a good grade in school or good news of an impending vacation. It was particular and specific good news of a new king that had come to the throne. And often it even could tie to the idea that the lineage of a good king was in fact secure, and therefore the people were secure and at peace. The word translated gospel in our language, in English, gospel, is euangelion in the Greek, and it means the proclamation of the good news of an enthroned king. And this was good news especially in those ancient days because society was far less independent and far more reliant upon one another. Death and starvation and pestilence and warfare were far more common, and so the notion of self-reliance was far less prevalent. Now, with this backdrop, a new king brought with him the hope that there would be greater protection from advancing armies, greater provision to fight against starvation, and greater administration of society to fight against pestilence. Unless the coming king was known to be evil, a hope would arise in the people that the new king that was enthroned would be someone who brought true peace to the people he was about to govern. Think about the slight similarity of how our society usually maybe not this year, but usually has the hope that the next new president will bring peace and prosperity. <laughs> to proclaim that this peace was coming because of the coming enthronement of the next in line to be king was to evangelize with this euangelion, this good news. It was to be an evangelist of the prince that is to bring peace to the dominion. Now all of this comes to bear in a big way as we look to the event of the birth of Jesus of Nazareth. For the Christmas story, not just a Christmas story, but the Christmas story that we're going to look at this morning is one that is about a coming prince who was to bring peace to the kingdom of God. Yes, it is about a child and a manger and animals and shepherds, but it is far more than that. It is about a coming prince who was invading a foreign kingdom to set free its captives and bring peace in a way that that kingdom had never known. And so as we read the narrative account of the birth of Jesus, in the gospel according to Matthew, we might notice that this is a bit light in detail around the exact day of Jesus' birth. You might notice when you compare it to Luke, for example, that it doesn't have any of the detail like Luke does that we often go to at Christmas because it's usually what's on those precious moments cards. But it's very detailed in another way. It's detailed in talking about the lineage of this coming prince, and for our society presently, we may cast aside this idea as odd or confusing, maybe even boring. But for almost all generations of humankind since the birth of Christ, the detail provided in our story here would have been of the utmost importance, and it would have brought great peace. If there was no lineage or genealogy, how could this man, who eventually was declaring to be king of the Jews, have any claim on his royalty? And if there were no lineage or genealogy, how would those who heard of his gospel know if this was truly the prince that would bring forth peace as he began to reign? 
And so let's look at the text and unpack all of this a bit more as we look at Matthew 1. And let's begin, as we always do on the Lord's Day, by reading the text that the Lord will use to minister to our hearts and minds. Let's read Matthew 1, 18 through 25. You can follow along as I read out loud. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The first thing that we see in our text this morning is a question of lineage, a question of lineage. Now, I've painted the picture for you that when a known prince was ascending to the throne and there was hope associated with his pedigree and possible reign, it brought elation and peace to the people. But what if there was not an apparent heir to the kingdom and the throne? What if the currently reigning king did not have children, for example? Or what if the lineage of their child was in doubt? Well, then all the kingdom would be very uneasy, and there would be fear and doubt that chaos and infighting would come to the kingdom. Just think about our current country, right? This upcoming election is is kind of odd and a little bit different for a number of reasons, and so you can feel a little bit of stress as we progress towards that day. Well, that is nothing compared to the idea that a single monarch would just disappear at death and have no lineage. To not have lineage confirmed and secured was a big deal. It meant that the person ascending to the throne might be doing it as a power grab and that they might be an abusive ruler. But it was even more than that. You see, in most pagan societies, the king was believed to have been put in place by God himself. Some kings were even supposed to be a a god of the people in human form. And so if the lineage of a potential king was in doubt, the people would wonder, is this an intruder? Is this a counterfeit that is taking power to destroy our society? Is this who God truly intended to lead our people? To not have your lineage confirmed was a really big deal for a potential king. And this is the situation that surrounds what Matthew says right at the beginning here. Matthew begins in verse 18 by announcing the birth of a child. But this is not just any child. This is the Christ. In Greek, Christos. In Hebrew, Mashiach or Messiah. In all these languages, it means anointed king. And so we would think that Matthew is about to lay out the powerful and amazing story of the birth of the king who will reign. But as we read it, we realize it's not backed in a fictionalized glory or myth as a pagan king would desire. No, it's much more different. It's much more realistic. It's quite the contrary. For this child came from a young teenage mother who was engaged and betrothed to her husband and had not yet become one with him physically. 
In those days, betrothal was a legal marriage. They had not yet had the ceremony or become one in flesh, but they were seen by the surrounding society as married. And so any change to this betrothal would have required a certificate of divorce. And so one day, this young woman, probably somewhere around 15 years of age, begins to show that she has a baby in her womb. The reasoning she gave was that it was from the Holy Spirit of the Hebrew God, and she had been informed that this would happen by a messenger of God. But as you might imagine, the people around her weren't really taken to it. And so it was assumed that she had become pregnant by someone other than her betrothed. And in that society, in that day, that would have meant she was an outcast. No one would have even talked to her. But Joseph is a kind man and a man who followed the Mosaic law. And so he wants to do her no harm. He wants to be just and righteous in how he cares for her. And so he decides he will break off the engagement, as most people expect him to do, but that he'll send her away quietly. And if you understand Mosaic law, this was amazing because he would have been the first to require that she be killed for supposed adultery. And so this was extremely compassionate, the most compassionate way he could have done it. Now, all of this, dear brothers and sisters, is not just telling a story for storytelling's sake. It is describing the fact that the lineage of this child was in doubt. It was questionable, to say the least. And this is a large problem for one who is going to grow up to be the anointed king, the Messiah. Matthew brings up the giant elephant in the room here. He brings to bear the question of lineage. But Matthew is not just bringing this up out of nowhere. You see, the Jewish people had been looking for a Messiah for a very long time. And in order to identify him, Scripture is full of descriptors of who he was to be. As part of this, this figure to come had more descriptions of his lineage than perhaps any other king ever known on this earth. In fact, the entirety of the whole Old Testament that comes directly before the gospel, according to Matthew, specifies who this Christ would be and why he is needed. And Matthew will lay out this evidence that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah by using these markers throughout the Old Testament, markers known as covenants that God made with his people. So let's think about just a few of them here this morning. First, we start with the very first covenant mentioned in the Bible between God and his human creation, Adam. God covenants with Adam in Genesis to be his provider if Adam obeys him and reflects God by his establishing dominion over God's creation. But most of you know the story. This did not go so well, did it? His wife and helper Eve is tempted by the enemy of God, and she disobeys God and draws Adam into disobedience as well. And this original sin of Eve and Adam now passes down to each and every one of their offspring, including you and I. And so God's people needed someone to come and save us from our innate rebellion against him, against his role as Lord in our life. In great grace, God promised one who would eventually come to redeem creation and mankind. But the first indicator he gave was very interesting. Look at what he says in Genesis 3.15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to the enemy of God, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The word for offspring that's italicized there on the screen in the original Hebrew is the word serah, and it indicates that it would be seed. Of a woman. Now, we're not going to do a biology lesson in here because there's kids in the room, 
But this means that there would be a woman who would conceive without the help of the seed of a man. It would be a virgin. This is one of the first mentions of the euangelion, the idea that a king would come that would establish his throne. And this is confirmed far later in the Old Testament in Isaiah 7, as the prophet is told something similar in Isaiah 7:14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. It's actually quoted here in Matthew. He's trying to point our eyes to this. This child that would be born to a virgin would be the one who would save God's people from their sin. Without him, all mankind would be given over to his wrath. Rightful wrath, just wrath, because we had rebelled against our creator God. The second covenant that we see spells out who this Christ would be is the covenant, God, uh, the, the covenant that God made with Abraham. At the time of Abraham, the entire world was overcome with the lie of paganism and idolatry to false and demonic gods. Mankind as a whole at that point in time had all but forgotten the true creator God of Genesis 1 and was blind to the truth of their rebellion against him. Without God's intervention, all mankind would therefore deserve his wrath. But God singles out an individual in the midst of all mankind, especially in one of the most pagan centers in all of the world at the time, Ur of the Chaldees, and he calls this man, Abraham, to himself. God promised Abraham something. This is from Genesis 12, 1 through 2. Now the Lord said to Abram, this was before he took on the name Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. It was to be through the offspring of Abraham that the truth of who the Creator God would come to all mankind, who the Creator God is, would come to all mankind. And this is how all the families of the earth would be blessed, is through that offspring, that person that would come to speak of the truth of God's kingdom and to die for the sins of the very pagans he was to leave. He was to become a new person in a new kingdom, the first father of many who would be saved by this coming Messiah. It was the Christ that would come from the lineage of Abram that would bring the blessing of spiritual sight back to the families of the world. It was the Christ from the lineage of Abraham that would break humanity free from the bondage that they were in to Satan's lie. The covenant of Adam, the covenant of Abraham. And then lastly, the third covenant that I want to go over is the one that spells out who this anointed king would be, and it's the covenant God made with the Jewish king David. At this point in time in David's life, Israel finally had a king handpicked by Yahweh and installed on the throne. The peace and victory and protection that King David brought to the people was something they never wanted to end. They were looking to his offspring to be their salvation. But again... Many of you know the story. This didn't go so well. And so God speaks to David before he dies and promises to him that trouble would come from his lineage, but God would stay faithful to David and eventually bring someone from his lineage that would be a prince that would ascend to the throne to continue the reign of David. And not only that, this anointed king, this Messiah, this Christ, would have a reign that would never end. Take a look at 2 Samuel 7.16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. That's that stability we were talking about. 
the people of that king can look to that stability and say, we are safe, we are secure, and we are at peace because we sit under the reign of this benevolent king. He says, your throne shall be established forever. These three covenants speak to the future identity of the one that would become the anointed king, the one that would be the Jewish Messiah and Gentile Christ. For he would be the one that would save all of God's people from the wrath of God against their rebellious hearts. He would be the one that would bring the blessing of relationship with God and freedom from the lie of God's enemy to God's people. And he would be the king who would bring peace for all eternity to the dominion and kingdom of God's people. Friends, no greater prince could have been hoped for to ascend the throne and bring forth peace for the kingdom. At this point, though, as we look at this short text in Matthew, we're thrust back into the reality that faces Mary, Joseph, and the rest of the Jewish people. Could this child here in Matthew 1, born to this woman, Mary, could this one whose lineage is in question really be this Messiah? Our text this morning is written by Matthew as a proclamation that not only is it possible, it is absolutely necessary that the Messiah come in this fashion. This child born to Mary in the town of Bethlehem is indeed the Christ that will fulfill all of these needs and that shows that he meets all of these requirements. And so the reality behind our text is that it is used by Matthew to speak forth the announcement of a royal heir. To speak forth the announcement of a royal heir. This is the entire reason that Matthew began the gospel with a list of genealogy. For us as supposedly independent, autonomous Christians, we wonder what the point of this first chapter in Matthew could be. It's just a list of names, right? Well, the majority of Americans only know their family history back a few generations. So to us, it, it doesn't really matter. What's the point here? But Matthew is painting in vivid detail the truth that Jesus of Nazareth, born to Mary, adopted under the legal earthly lineage of Joseph, is indeed the prince that has been anticipated. And so Matthew acts as the proclaimer of the euangelion, the gospel according to Matthew, the enthronement of a good king according to Matthew. He acts as the evangelist of the euangelion. And look specifically how he did it in chapter 1. Before he even got to the text we're reading this morning, look with me at Matthew 1.1. We read it last week as well. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Notice who he connects to here. The son of David. The son of Abraham. And notice that as he finishes, look at verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Matthew uses the same covenants we just discussed. He speaks of Abraham and of David as the connectors to show that this is the Messiah. But is this really enough? Is Matthew's research genealogy of Jesus enough to establish that he is the Messiah sent by God? Well, this is where our text this morning comes in handy. For Matthew declares that Jesus' earthly lineage is only added evidence. 
The core evidence is actually what came in the midst of this questioning of Jesus' lineage in verses 18 and 19. And the questioning was on the part of Joseph, his earthly adopted father. Let's read what comes next in our text in verses 20 through 23. But as Joseph considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Joseph was in the midst of possibly divorcing this woman, and he considered what to do. An even more powerful evangelist than Matthew shows up at this point. In a dream, one of God's angels. Talk about a powerful evangelist. The word angelos in Greek means messenger. This messenger came to Joseph to let him know that Jesus' connection to the lines of Abraham and David, well, it wasn't even the most important part of his lineage. Jesus was indeed adopted by Joseph, the offspring of King David. But Jesus' true father, this messenger says, is actually of divine origin. He is the very creator God, known to the Jews as the great I am. And his conception was made possible through the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. Now Matthew declares clearly here that this is what was intended and what has been fulfilled as God's people look to the prophecy of Isaiah 7, in which the virgin will conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel, for it means God with us, God incarnate. Just as every child here in this room in some way reflects their earthly fathers, this child would be the direct reflection and perfect impression of the father that had conceived him. He would be the 100% man reflecting his earthly mother and father, and 100% God reflecting his heavenly father. And through Jesus, God would perfectly declare his own merciful and gracious nature because it would be through this Christ that God the Father would save his people. He would fulfill the very hope of Psalm 130, that the true Israel of God would be saved by this Messiah. He would save his own chosen people from their sin of rebellion against the Creator and reestablish relationship with him in loving union. And to add even more weightiness to the, story and, uh, to the story and the society of those days, the father is known because he is the one who gives the name to the child upon the child's birth. And here Matthew declares that Jesus is both the son of God, but in the earthly plane he is also the son of David because both God and Joseph name him. Only one who was 100% man could enter into mankind and unite with us in the suffering and temptation of this life and yet walk in perfect obedience to God the Father. And only an infinite God in human form could die for the infinite weight of the sinfulness of mankind. It could be no one else. If he were merely a man, we would all be dead in our sins and trespasses even if he were obedient because he would be obedient only for himself. If he were only God and a phantom of spirit, well then he would have never been the fitting sacrifice to die for our sins and bring us forgiveness. Only the Son of God made flesh 
could undo the curse of the first son of God. We see this in Luke's lineage and genealogy later. In Luke 3, 23 through 38, we start with this idea of Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. And then the genealogy continues, and it ends with this, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Only the son of God made flesh as a son of Adam could undo the curse of the first son of God. This Messiah would be the better second Adam that would perfectly fulfill what the first Adam could not. In both of these genealogies, the lineage of Jesus is spelled out in a way that makes us realize that he alone could be the Messiah that could establish the kingdom of God and save us from our sin. He alone is the perfect prince in the line of the king that could bring true peace to a world wrapped in chaos and darkness. This beautiful truth is the heart and the whole of the Christmas story. For the Christmas story is truly about the invading Prince of Peace. The invading Prince of Peace. Let's read the last portion of our text from verses 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph awoke from his dream and followed God's command. He took Mary as his wife, but did not become one with her in flesh until after she had given birth to Jesus. Now imagine that moment with me. In those days, the child would come forth from the mom and be given to the father. He would take the child on his knees there in front of the mother, and the father would proclaim the name with which the child would be known. And Joseph perfectly obeys the father and names him Jesus, Yeshua in the Hebrew. And this is a name that means Yahweh saves, or the salvation of Yahweh. Jesus would then grow up to live a sinless life. He would minister for three years as the perfect reflection of the heart of Yahweh to his people. And then he would be wrongly arrested and falsely tried and hung on a cross between two thieves and rebels. And in that moment on the cross, over three decades after this first entrance of his into the world, he would become the sacrifice that would atone for our rebellion against God. He would bring forgiveness to all those who are the Lord's people. In Jesus, God proved faithful to his covenant promise to Adam and his promise to Eve. He would then rise from the grave three days later, proving that he is God because only God is powerful enough to conquer death. And then 40 days later, he would ascend into the heavens, showing that he is the Son of God that was to be enthroned at the right hand of the Father, where he still sits today. It is in that enthronement that he became the perfect Davidic king over all of God's people. Because he rose from the grave and lives forever, his reign will last for all eternity. In Jesus, God proved faithful to his covenant promise to David. And from his throne, reigning over his people, he poured out his Holy Spirit into us. What we now know as the church, made up of both Jew and Gentile, from every tribe and tongue under heaven, across all time and space. The good news of these events of his death and resurrection, ascension and enthronement became the truth that could finally open the eyes of those trapped in the darkness of the lie of God's adversary. 
In Jesus, God proved faithful to his covenant promise to Abraham to bless all the families of the earth. All of these pieces of God proving his faithfulness through Christ are the true reason that we celebrate the Christmas story. For every one of us needs a Savior that saves us from our rebellion against a holy God. Every one of us needs one who comes to break us free from the enslavement we have to our own sinful hearts and the, the lie that Satan has fed us. The lie that we are better lords over our lives than God himself. And every one of us is in need of a strong ruler who provides for us, protects us, and helps us to live out his will in our lives. Every one of us, enslaved to a world of chaos, with the chaos of sin reigning within us, need a perfect prince of peace to come and conquer our hearts and to conquer this world. This is what Jesus' birth declares and initiates. In that moment, he was born as a baby. Heaven invaded earth, and the king of all creation sent his son, the prince that would become king, to accomplish a true peace that will last forevermore. And this peace will not come by just simple, small steps of changing society. This peace will come by the redemption of man's hearts and a day when he comes to judge the wicked and the righteous and redeem heaven and earth. And that true peace will last forevermore. And that is why the prophet Isaiah declares the beautiful prophecy we heard earlier. Listen again to Isaiah's words and how they tie together all we have heard this morning out of Matthew. This is from Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. When Jesus was born to that young girl and her faithful husband in those humble beginnings, he wasn't just a baby born in a manger that would motivate peace, somehow motivate some supposed goodness in mankind to bring about peace ourselves. He also wasn't just one who would grow to become a moral example. He was so much more. He was the invading prince of peace who came to a world in rebellion against the Father. He was the one that declared war on sin and death and conquered it all through his sacrificial death and established his throne and rule as mighty God, image of the everlasting Father and everlasting Lord. This is the Christmas story. Dear friend, if you've joined us this morning and the Christmas story for you is just another fable or myth, like the secular Christmas stories that you've heard or movies that you've watched, please know that it is quite the opposite. In the historical person of Jesus of Nazareth, all these lineages actually converged. All of these prophecies that were written long before his birth were equally fulfilled. And the events put forth by Matthew did indeed happen. For you to celebrate Christmas, truly celebrate Christmas, 
You must reckon with these historical and truthful events, and you must ask, well, if he is the reigning king, does he reign in my life as well? Or am I still stuck in the darkness and gloom of sin and death? If you are a person that is, Christ wants to set you free and draw you into his kingdom where he reigns in perfect love and peace. And today is the day of your salvation. For Matthew has given us the gospel. He has evangelized to us. He has declared that this king is enthroned. What will you do with it? Let the one whose very name means salvation through God be that for you. Be salvation. And we would love to help you with that. If that's you, one of us as pastors or elders would love to talk with you further after service about what that looks like in, in your life. We would be happy to talk with you about that here on this Christmas Eve. On this Christmas Eve, God is reminding us of the good news of his royal announcement of an heir and that he has sent his son, the Prince of Peace, to invade our world, to bring us forgiveness and to give us redemption because we are his own. As we leave here and begin our festivities over the next couple days, and for some of us, when we return this evening, I pray that we would be a people that hold the Christmas story at the forefront of our hearts and minds so that we give glory to God in the highest, for he has brought peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the Christmas story. Because the Christmas story is the gospel. It is the truth that your son was sent to be enthroned. And to be enthroned, he first died and resurrected, died in our place to save us from our sin and resurrected to show your victory over death. And now he sits enthroned at your right hand as our king, ruling and reigning over our hearts and minds and lives. And we pray that that would be the truth, that by your spirit, he would reign. And so even as Seth prayed earlier, we, we pray again, Lord, that you would help us to surrender and submit every part of our hearts and minds to you, especially those parts that are in rebellion against you and maybe even without knowing because we are so blinded by our own sin. And so this morning on this Christmas Eve, before we run off to festivities and focus on all the trappings of Christmas, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to refocus our minds on the truth of Christmas, which is the Christ. It's you, Jesus. And so we pray that you would help us to focus on you as we sing these last few songs, as we take part in communion together as a local expression of your greater church across all time and space. Help us to be a people that truly give glory to you in the highest because you have brought peace amongst your people with whom you are pleased. We thank you for your salvation. We thank you for your redemption. And we thank you for invading our world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.